Welcome back to the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast, where we aim to bring you the latest evidence and research to enable you to perform at your best, prevent injury, and recover well. The Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast is brought to you by Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre. I'm Anthony Lance, physiotherapist, co-founder of SSPC, and your host for today. Thanks for tuning in to episode 20. So far in past episodes, we've talked about so many things about performance, prevention and recover from injury and sport. But this is the first time we get into a topic of where things may not go right, and that's surgery. We'll talk today to one of Melbourne's leading orthopaedic surgeons, Chris Jones, on all things knee replacements. Anyone with knee pain or considering surgery, and certainly anyone considering the possibility of a knee joint replacement, should find this really interesting. Once we got Chris started, we realised how much he loves knee replacements, so we've had to divide this episode into two parts. In part one today, we're going to talk to Chris generally about what a total knee joint replacement is and what the term actually means. He'll discuss how he assesses a person and how he comes to the conclusion that you might need a total knee joint replacement. We'll talk about what your scan results mean and how critical pain and pain levels is in influencing the decision on whether to have the actual operation. We'll talk risk factors that can lead to a total knee joint replacement. We'll talk to prosthesis and plenty more in this first part of talking total knee joint replacements. But just before getting into today's episode, if you're enjoying our podcast, please don't forget to hit the follow button on our home site and that'll make sure you don't miss any episodes. And it'd be great if you have any comments or feedback, leave them on our site. But for now, let's get straight into episode twenty. Well, it gives me great pleasure today to welcome our guest for episode 20. And our guest today is Mr. Chris Jones, who's a specialist orthopaedic surgeon with the Orthopaedic Group, who's a group of surgeons who service the Melbourne Bayside community, mainly out of Linica and Cabrini. And Chris is certainly one of our preferred knee surgeons here at Southern Suburbs. Uh, Chris was originally from Sydney, but we're going to claim him as a local boy because he did his schooling at Brighton Grammar, uh, studied at Monash Uni, then completed his training through the Australian Orthopaedic Association's Victorian Training Program, and he's now a local in the Bayside area. Uh, the Royal Aust Australasian College of Surgeons admitted Chris as a fellow in 2009, and he then undertook further subspecialty training in hip and knee surgery in Halifax, Canada, working with one of the world's most renowned hip and knee surgeons, Dr. Michael Dunbar. Chris has been involved in prize-winning research regarding reducing infection in surgery. He has published papers on total knee replacement alignment and fixation, and he's written textbook chapters on both total knee replacement and total hip replacement, and he's just told me that knees are his favourite subject in the world, so hopefully I haven't missed anything, Chris, but um, if I have, update us and um, tell us a bit about more where you're at now and what you're doing. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Um, I, uh, I'm doing most of my work actually now in, uh, in Hampton, in Lineker. Yep. Um, and predominantly hip and knee replacements and ACL reconstructions. But uh, you're right, knee replacement is uh, 
certainly one of my favourite topics. I love talking about knee replacements. I love thinking about knee replacements. It's a very complicated operation that uh, surgeons around the world are, are getting our head around and getting better and better and better at delivering delivering results. Fantastic. Yeah, and look, I suppose that's the idea of today is, you know, most of our, our listeners um, will be people who... Uh, maybe considering um, a knee replacement or having uh, knee pain, and there's so much information out there, so it's 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 nice to get it from the horse's mouth. Um, and there has been so many developments, um, but look, there there is so much to talk about that I've tried to break it into a few clear categories um, just to make it flow better. So I, I suppose you know if we start with just the term total knee replacement. Like in really simplistic terms, it's giving someone a new knee, but can you explain it a bit more orthopedically than that? Like we'll get into the surgery, but, you know, what does a total knee really mean? Well, yeah, it, it, it means replacing your knee. Uh, we use the term knee replacement to mean a half knee replacement or a full knee replacement or a revision knee replacement, taking out a previously performed knee replacement, putting in a new one. But broadly speaking, Knee replacement surgery is used to manage arthritis and dysfunction in the knee. And we, in a, a manner of speaking, cut out the arthritis uh, and resurface the, the joint of the knee, of the knee with, with bits of metal and plastic uh, so that your sore knee that's got arthritis in it um, becomes comfortable and works again. It bends, it straightens, it points in the right direction. Yeah, okay. And I know with... Um... ACLs, like Australia, I think, leads the world in ACL reconstruction. So it's always sort of been in Australia, if you tear your anterior cruciate ligament or rupture it, you, you have a, an ACL reco. Now, that's the thought around that's changing a little bit. But where does knee replacements stand in terms of how, do, how does Australia sit around the world and how many are we doing? Australians are really lucky. I think, um, among other things, the the surgical training in Australia is world-class. Um, Australian surgeons, when we go overseas, we have the respect of the rest of the world because of our training system. Um, we do good operations and we do a lot of operations. We do slightly less knee replacements in Australia than in the UK, but we do a lot more than some European countries like Sweden and Norway. Um, in, in Australia, we do about 60,000 knee replacements a year. Um, in the UK, that number is more like 80,000. Um, but we do slightly less hip replacements than knee replacements. We do about okay. 40,000 hip replacements a year. New Zealand is slightly, slightly the other way. They have about 10% of the volume that we have, um, but they do slightly more, more hips than knees. Um, there's some registries in the US that, that report knee replacement uh, volume, and it's similar to Australia. The US do more knee replacements per capita uh, than Australia, but Australia's up there. And the use of technology in putting knee replacements in is highest in Australia as compared to everywhere else around the world. And that's probably due to our health system and access to, to technology, to funded technology. Yeah, okay. And how many knee replacements do you reckon you've done in your career? Oh, thousands. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I do about between 120 and 180 a, a year, um, depending on lockdowns and yeah. public and private sort of 
sort of mix. Um, but yeah, between about 120 and 180 a year. Yeah, uh, okay. The, the registry of joint replacements records results uh, and has individual surgeons' results. So they know how many we do and they know how many we have revised uh, for every surgeon in Australia. Sure. And that they can tell that if you don't do enough, your revision rate goes up. And then the number you need to reach is about 70 a year. Okay. Beyond 70 a year, your results don't improve. And then there's potentially a tail at the other end where you do hundreds, if you're doing 500 or 700 a year, your results deteriorate again, probably party okay. rushing or you just you physically need to spend time doing it. And there's only so many hours in a day. And once you start to push it and rush, you, your results drop off. So 70 is the magic number. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Um, well, let, let's talk about how people end up uh, on your table. So um, we most people would simply equate, and you've sort of touched on it, that, that end-stage arthritis uh, can lead to a knee replacement. Is it is it that simple? Is it just if you're end-stage arthritis, that's, that's your outcome? Well, you have to have the disease. Um, yep. So if you come in with a sore knee... Um, and you don't have arthritis, a knee replacement probably isn't going to solve your problem. We, we can use x-rays or MRIs to confirm that you've got arthritis. Broadly speaking, you can diagnose arthritis on an MRI much earlier than you can diagnose it on an x-ray. And most of us would agree that if you can't see your arthritis on an x-ray, you probably should consider not having an, a, a knee replacement, even if you've got arthritis on your MRI. Right. Perhaps because historically we didn't use MRIs to confirm that you had arthritis. But if you've got established arthritis on your X-ray, a knee replacement is an appropriate operation. It's, you shouldn't have something little like an arthroscopy to try and tidy it up. The, the operation that you should have if you need an operation is a knee replacement. But just because you've got arthritis on your X-ray doesn't mean you should have a knee replacement. You have to have symptoms in, a, in in conjunction with that. So the symptoms that, that knee replacement treats the best is pain and particularly pain related to activity that then keeps you awake at night. A, a little bit of pain every other day after you've walked 15 kilometres, even if you've got x-ray changes consistent with arthritis. To, to buy you an improvement, if that's your ability to function, you, is difficult and knee replacement might not be the right operation for you. Maybe that you don't need an operation. You just need to continue doing strengthening and, and mobility exercises. Um, it's difficult to, to pull people out of the fire if pain isn't their primary, uh, primary symptom. Yeah, sure. And so those, so as you say, the, I suppose as practitioners, what we do is we, we do two key parts to an assessment. One's where we ask the patient what they feel and the other's where we assess it. So when you're talking to the patient, your red flags really are pain and pain at night. Like they're the two key drivers. They're, they're the things that I really think about. Yeah. If someone says to me, no, 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 pain's not a problem, that's almost an opposite red flag. That's a, whoa, whoa, hang on, knee replacement might not be the right operation for you. Sure. Okay. What about the second part of the assessment where, which we call objective and, and we, we grab the patient's knee and we poke and we prod and move it around. What are you looking for? Are there any sort of red flags in that part of the assessment that make you think, gee, this knee is no good? So the most important thing is how deformed the knee is. 
Um, the more deformed the knee is, the more appropriate a knee replacement is. Um, but there's, you, you, your knee can deform in a number of ways. You, you can become more and more bow-legged or you can become more and more knock-kneed as the, the inside or conversely the outside of your knee wears out. Um, the, the knock-kneed deformity, as people become more and more knock-kneed, there becomes a limit and the limit is about 30 degrees of knock-kneed deformity and beyond that, we can't pull you out of the fire with a knee replacement. Right. There's nerve that runs down the outside that can be stretched and, and compromised. So we try and catch people with knock-knee deformities before they get to there so that we can safely do a knee replacement for them. On the other hand, the people who become bow-legged, which is the vast majority of people with knee arthritis, there's not really a limit. The, the, the deformity looks bad. It's an indication you've got bad arthritis. But it doesn't matter how bow-legged you are, we can pull you out of the fire with a knee replacement down okay. the track. So there's no, I say to my patients, no one has to have a knee replacement. 60 years ago, no one had a knee replacement. And for yeah. thousands of years before that, no one had a knee replacement. This isn't cancer. You're not going to die of arthritis. But a knee replacement will improve your mobility. It will improve your pain. And it will improve your ability to get a good night's sleep if you have the diagnosis. Sure. And if we take, we've sort of, you've chatted a little bit about scans and I, I think, you know, all of us, we've got a lot better with our knowledge of scans and how scans can be misleading sometimes. But if I give you a, a, a couple of scenarios and you've sort of touched on it a little bit, but if a person comes in with a horrible looking scan, but the pain isn't destroying their life and, and let's say they're not not need and, and haven't got that that 30 degree so they've got a terrible scan but not much pain your tendency might be for them to hang on a little bit yeah i think uh, i think that patient i'll be able to make their knee straighter with a knee replacement but if they haven't got much pain i, I don't have much pain to make better yeah so the bang for the buck for, for your knee replacement is reduced and it's not that they can't get a good result that patient may look back and wish they never had the surgery and you can't go back and unhave the operation. So, you know, it's not a benign procedure. It's not completely without risk. Yeah, sure. Um, and what about the opposite where, you know, somebody comes in with horrendous pain and you sort of said the x-ray as well, but their scan's not um, probably as bad as their pain indicates, but you've ruled all else out. Do do you ever, again, with pain being a main thing, would you would you maybe lead into a replacement on that scenario? With caution. Um, the, those patients that, that don't have terrible arthritis but have terrible pain before their surgery uh, are, are more highly represented in unsatisfied patients after knee replacements. Right. Those patients are, are less likely statistically to be really happy with their knee replacement, even though it's done well um, and I try and explore reasons why they may have that pain acknowledging that we don't really understand pain for a knee replacement to be successful you have to have you have to have bad x-ray and you have to have pain and there are some people who don't fall into those categories there's some people who have pain without really significant x-ray changes of arthritis and those people were really cautious uh, with doing a knee replacement. It's not that we would never do it, but those patients are more highly represented in, in dissatisfied patients after knee replacements. It's harder to give them a really good knee replacement. 
We'll just take a short break there and reflect back on our most recent podcast with AFL legend and media star, Jared Healy. As well as over 200 AFL games, multiple Best and Fairest awards, Team of the Century selection for the Swans, multiple All-Australian and the AFL Pinnacle Award, the Brownlow Medal, Jared has established himself as one of the longest serving and leading AFL commentators. I spoke to him about what football was like in his playing days through to what it's like now for today's players. And here's a bit of what he had to say. Um, and if I mention the word recovery to you in 1988, yep. what would it have meant back then? Uh, recovery back then, 1988, was probably uh, six to eight beers. Um, <laughs> yeah, a, a couple of stretches and, uh, you know, maybe a light run on a, on a Sunday morning. Yeah, righty. So if I said to you now that you you had to jump in an ice bath and fill out a well-being questionnaire and not have a drink of al- alcohol and make sure every meal was nutritious, would you have been a better or a worse player? Well, you certainly would have been a, a better athlete. There's no question. I, mean, I, I can remember talking to Barry Mitchell, who was one of the first guys to get on involved with that uh, that sort of recovery regime. Uh, and he did it at the very end of his career, and he just couldn't believe the difference that it made in his capacity to train during the week and yep. therefore recover uh, from a week-to-week basis. But, uh, no, it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a much better science that drives performance now. Um, I'm not sure it's a better game to play from a fun perspective. Yeah. But uh, from a career perspective, I mean, our athletes are now trained like Olympians, and, I mean, the Olympians for years used to laugh at us Saying how dedicated we were, and uh, but now I think our guys are doing just as just just it just as hard from a social perspective as um, as they do. So, if you want to catch up on episode nineteen with Jared Healy, jump across to the Perform, Prevent, Recover page, and you'll be able to download that episode and see everything else we've done. But for now, let's get back to knee replacements with orthopedic surgeon Chris Jones. So, Chris, something I uh, am very interested in is ACL recos, uh, particularly those done decades ago, and we seem to be seeing a few of them now end up with uh, probably earlier joint arthritis than we, we'd thought or hoped and, and potentially needing knee replacements. Is that is that what you're seeing? A little bit, yeah. It's, um, it's, a difficult, it's difficult to figure it out. Uh, ACL, ACL surgery means that you've had a bad injury to your knee and bad injuries to knees can result in arthritis and the data is a little bit conflicting. Uh, some papers suggest that perhaps half of all knees that have an ACL injury go on to have arthritis requiring a knee replacement. Certainly data out of Europe, particularly Sweden, suggests that perhaps the, the meniscal tear that occurs as a result of the injury is more dictating whether the, the knee goes on to fail. Uh, and certainly uh, the Swedish data suggests that if you tear your medial meniscus as part of your ACL injury uh, or subsequent instability episode, there's perhaps a 90% incidence of going on to a knee replacement. But if you don't tear your medial meniscus, uh, perhaps that incidence is as low as 10%. And doing a reconstruction 
reduces the incidence of medial meniscus tear because you don't have subsequent instability. So the thought is that doing an ACL reconstruction can hopefully reduce that, that meniscal, uh, meniscal tear and the subsequent meniscal tear and therefore reduce the risk of, of, uh, of knee replacement. The data's coloured, though, because the patients who don't have their knee reconstructed don't tend to go back to a pivoting at-risk sport because they can't do it. And the patients who do have their knee reconstructed do go back to an at-risk situation where they can tear their meniscus even if they don't have another ACL injury. And the, the patients we're seeing now are patients who had knee reconstructions 20 or 30 years ago who had a completely different operation to what we're doing now. So I try and tell patients now that if I see someone with an acute ACL injury, if they think they want to go back to a pivoting sport or they want to do pivoting activities and they have an intact medial meniscus, I think doing a knee reconstruction and stopping them tear that medial meniscus or reducing the chance of them tearing that medial meniscus down the track is really important. If they've already torn their medial meniscus as part of their initial ACL injury and they don't want to go back to a pivoting sport, I think that that's a different patient. That, that, that patient, maybe you can say to that patient, see, here you go, you, you don't have anything to lose now. Like, I can't put your medial meniscus back together. If it's a repairable tear, sure, that's, that's reasonable. You do the reconstruction and repair the meniscus. But, but um, the vast majority of people who tear their medial meniscus as part of an ACL injury don't have a repairable tear. And those patients, it's more reasonable to wait and see what happens. Yeah, sure. And I suppose, too, the other thing that I think we've learned a lot about is just the um, what we used to call a clean out of the knee. And, and that obviously was mainly to do with the meniscus where there's little tears and, you know, guys... Footballers are the classics, almost a badge of honour. They've had their fourth knee clean out. Um, we're pretty sure now that, that that's not the best way just to keep going in and having clean out after clean out because there is some evidence, isn't there, that that will lead to early OA of the knee? Yeah, I think continuing to instrument the knee is not good for it. I think if you've got a definable meniscal problem that, that is, is causing pain and causing dysfunction, going and removing that that irritable meniscal tear is sensible and reasonable. But I think a lot of medial meniscus tears, particularly chronic and degenerative medial meniscus tears, are not actually irritable. Uh, and going in just because you've got a meniscal tear is not the right thing to do. And look, it fits in. There's some great uh, research coming out of Latrobe at the moment, which we're doing at the clinic, actually, um, the super knee study, where we, you know, like we used to think um, that having an ACL RICO would stop you from getting arthritis, and we now know that's not necessarily the case. And uh, certainly from a physio perspective, putting it down to maybe we didn't rehab people long enough and well enough on their strength and, and you know, if we get better with our current knowledge now at uh, getting people stronger and, and that that that's also across to the person that doesn't have the ACL reconstruction and goes conservative that if, if they can just um, not avoid rehab and get really strong a lot of them do really well without an ACL potentially um, and also we're hoping or they're hoping out of this research that maybe we see less of the arthritic outcome in the people People that do have reconstructions just by being stronger. Absolutely. I think the knees wear out after injury, whether you have the reconstruction or not, because of abnormal movements between the femur and the tibia. And you don't definitely need an ACL to stop that. 
but you definitely need strength to stop that. You need to have strong quads, you need to have strong hamstring, and you need to have a strong core, your, your glutes and your TFL, everything needs to be strong in order to maintain your knee stability. Uh, and and if, you can, if you can get the knee to work normally and have a normal kinematic movement through the range of flexion, particularly when it's loaded and landing, your risk of having, having arthritis goes down. And you don't, as, as you say, you don't need an ACL to do that, but you do need strong, strong muscles. If we get on to sort of the prosthesis itself, so what you're putting in, I mean, there's been, uh, as you said, changes over time. And we hear people talk about um, all different types of, of material that can be used. So what, what do you use? What's, what's being used at the moment? The vast majority of knee replacements have a titanium base plate of the, on the tibia. So the top of the shin bone is resurfaced with a, a, a base plate of titanium that in most cases is held in place with bone cement. Yep. And lining that, attached to that and lining it is a polyethylene bearing. So the, the top of the tibia is shaped with a bit of polyethylene and it's toughened polyethylene that has very low wear characteristics. The, um, the resurfacing of the femur or the, the end of the, the bottom of the thigh bone is, is usually done with a, a cobalt chrome, highly polished piece of metal shaped to look like the end of a thigh bone or a piece of ceramicised metal. So typically I would now use an oxinium component, which is a, a bit of metal that's been fired in a kiln to have ceramic properties. So it has even, even better wear characteristics. Um, but they're very similar and they're, they're again held in place most of the time with bone cement on the, on the femoral side. There's different, we, we talk about different things. Patients say, oh, what about a medial pivot knee or what about a mobile bearing knee? And the, they're just different ways of achieving that congruity between the femur and the tibia. And the results of them are very similar, statistically almost indistinguishable in our registry of joint replacements, which we have over a million joints that we're following over the last 20 years. Um, there's different levels of constraint in a knee replacement. So there's ligaments inside the knee that can be sequentially removed as, as you increase the constraint in a knee replacement. I guess the first, the, the least constraining is a, a half knee replacement where all the ligaments are left behind. Um, but so is a lot of the joint. And um, half knee replacements don't do as well as, as full knee replacements. Yeah. And, and when they go badly, they go really badly. Yep. But when they're good, they're really, really good. Knee replacement surgery itself has gotten better over time. And now my patients with knee replacements, with full knee replacements, are almost as good as my really good patients with partial knee replacements. And as a result, we're doing less and less partial knee replacements because the longevity or the lifespan of a knee replacement is much better than the lifespan of a half knee replacement. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. And certainly clinically over the years, we've we found exactly that the half knee replacements when a patient comes in, you're thinking, oh my God, I got it, it might be good, it might be bad. And as you say, when they're bad, they 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 tend to be no good. So if if we touch on that for a sec, and for the people listening, you know, half knee replacement is when half one side of your joint looks no good and the other side looks good. If you're sort of not sure whether someone's going to end up good or bad, but only half of their joint needs doing, what makes you decide whether you do it or not or whether you do a full knee replacement? Ten years ago, age of the patient, a younger patient, I'd be more inclined to do a half knee replacement knowing that you can go back and change it out to a full knee replacement. 
unfortunately our registry of joint replacements has shown that the results of changing out that half knee to a full knee, that the full knee that you put in doesn't do as well as if you just put a full knee in at the start. And, and now full knee replacement is so good that, that unless the rest of the knee looks perfect, uh, I, I err on the side of doing a full knee replacement yeah. uh, because it's such a good operation. Yeah, rightio. And I think one of my frustrations over the years, I'm sure yours is too, is your, your patient that ends up with you who's been told, you know, wait as long as you can and you're too young and, you know, when your pain's crippling, you you can go and see the surgeon. And I think that was based around many years ago. Certainly when I started physio, we thought these prosthesis might last 10 years and, and you can only have one revision or one repeat procedure. So if you're 50 and wears out at 60, you're 70, you could be in trouble. But what's your expected lifespan of, of the prosthesis these days? So good, better than it was 15 years ago mainly because we changed the way we make the polyethylene or the plastic bearing in the knee so that it, it no longer wears out as quickly. Um, the days of telling patients that a knee replacement lasts 10 years are gone. Yeah. I expect most of the knee replacements that I do to last the patient the rest of their life. But you're right, the first knee replacement you get is the best. You can do more than one revision, but they get increasingly complicated. Right. They don't last as long. Your, your, your function of your, your revision knee replacement is not as good as the function of the first knee that you have. And the data in Australia is that if you're over 75 when you have your knee replacement, there's a significantly less than 5% chance that you ever need another operation. But if you're under 55 when you have your knee, your knee replacement, there's about a 20% chance you have another operation in the next 20 years. Right. So our data goes to 20 years and it's 19% of 19 years is the number that we sort of quote for 50, 55 years and under having knee replacements. But that means that 80% of those patients who had knee replacements in their early 50s 20 years ago still have their knee. So they're really good. Yeah. Well, this is a much better operation than it used to be. Yeah, okay. What's the youngest person you've done? I've done a couple of people in the past in their late 40s, as in 49, 48. Both of those patients were for trauma. They both had car accidents or motorbike accident, had fractured femur, fractured knees in their 20s and had terrible knees in their 30s and 40s. I tried very hard to push them out to 50, and both of them convinced me to do their knee replacement. Um, they're okay, but they would have been, it would have been better if we could have held on a couple more years. You, your expectations of what you want to do with your knee change as you get older, and a knee replacement is not a normal knee. It doesn't feel like a normal knee. It clicks, it clunks. It's just, it's just not perfect. And when we've tried to make knee replacements really mimic the, the natural knee, the native knee, they haven't lasted. So, so we dumb it down a little bit. But because of that, your brain's kind of always aware you've got a knee replacement and, and it doesn't feel quite like a normal knee. It's a lot better now than it was in the past, but satisfaction of knee replacement when you're under 50 is really difficult to achieve and 50 is broadly speaking my absolute cutoff okay and when just an interest like obviously you you have your prosthesis material how do you adjust for patient size and shape like take us through how you you get a new joint to fit your person so there's a whole lot of different sizes um, the, the components come in, the components that I use come in sort of 15 or 20 different, different sizes and shapes. 
the way that you choose what size to, to use, you, you can use instruments during a surgery and physically just use a caliper and size the, uh, and size the bone. And that's probably the least accurate way of doing it. Um, and it's going out of favour in Australia in, in favour of technology. Um, you can do, as you say, take an MRI scan, send it off and use the data from the MRI scan to determine what size implant you get. Noting that, that the MRI scan doesn't make an implant for you. It makes a cutting block that, side, that, that cuts the femur. You're not getting a custom component. You're getting an off-the-shelf component, but you're planning it on an MRI-based cutting block, so a custom cutting block. You can use a computer during the surgery to navigate the knee and plan where to put it. Uh, and then I guess the next step is to use a robotic tool to then, to then shape and plan and then shape the bone to fit, fit the component. But the components are all off-the-shelf components. Yep. But sizes are so close together that, that in the vast majority of situations, you know, I, I do a robotic knee replacement, and in the vast majority of situations, you could go one size up and one size down and make it fit and it would be completely fine and the patient would never know. There's, the sizes are close enough together that you don't run out of sizes. Yeah, okay. And I think that is a really big misconception. We get people coming in and, and thinking that that MRI is uh, being sent off and they're posting back a custom-made uh, <laughs> prosthesis, but that's that's not the case. It's, not uh, it's a wonderful marketing tool that the implant companies use to sell implants. Uh, unfortunately, in the Registry of Joint Replacements, that, that we call it image-derived instrumentation. So, so we, we make a custom instrument, broadly speaking, based on your MRI. The, the results of those knees are not as good as a result of a computer-navigated knee or a robotic knee um, and are, are not as good as a standard instrumented knee. It's a, it's a backward step. It's more efficient, so the operation takes less time, but the results uh, in terms of longevity are not as good. And the main reason for that is it's actually quite difficult to fit that cutting block to the bone. But the one on the femur on the end of the thigh bone is pretty straightforward to fit because the femur is this wonderful three-dimensional big variable sort of block of bone that, that you can put things on the top and the back and the side and the front. But the tibias are flat and getting the, the block to fit perfectly on a flat surface is actually really difficult. And it means that the knees aren't necessarily put in exactly where the computer intended them to be put in. And you don't have any way of checking because you don't have the computer in the operating theatre. So a navigated knee using a computer in the operating theatre to plan the cuts during the surgery is a more accurate way of doing it. And the results in Australia, particularly in younger patients, are, are that those knees that are put in with computer navigation, about 15 minutes longer to do that operation, but um, I sort of say to my patients, do, do you care? Uh, the patient doesn't care if it takes 15 minutes longer, they're asleep. Surgeon cares because it means maybe I can do four knee replacements in a day instead of five. But if you ask the individual patients, they don't want you doing the knee replacement as quickly as you possibly can. They want you doing it as well as you can. They don't care if it takes a little bit longer. My, my yeah. patients want a good knee replacement. So it's harder to market a knee replacement that takes a little bit longer and the implant companies don't really like it because they don't sell as many implants because you don't put as many in. But the patients like it yeah, without sure. realising it because they're getting a better knee. Yeah, sure. And and I think um, uh, another misconception we see is, you know, you talk about robots as people imagine this robot standing over and doing the <laughs> surgery, but it's really just a, it's for cutting, isn't it? Like the robot does the cutting. Yeah, so the robot that I use is a, a milling tool. 
that, that removes the bone and, and it removes the bone accurately. The problem that we've had with knee replacements over the past 20, 30 years is that we use a power saw to cut the bone and we, we guide that saw with a cutting block and there's some error. And, and the error is because it's got this rough saw that's moving uh, through a cutting block that, that it's got some play in it. And the error is thought to be a couple of millimetres and a couple of degrees. And we know from our computer-assisted knee replacements that that's the difference between a knee that's good and a knee that's not as good. And so we've introduced computers to navigate it so that we get the cut in the right spot, but we still put a cutting block on and we still got this, this subtle error. Now we can measure that error during the operation and take steps to, to address it. But once you've removed the bone, you can't put it back. The robotic assisted milling tool is basically we, we the, the computer knows where your knee is in time and space and it knows where the tip of the tool is in time and space and it will only remove the bone that needs to be removed. And the accuracy is now sub-millimetre, sub-degree accuracy. So, so it's less than a millimetre, less than a degree. And where we plan to put the implant, that's where the implant goes. And again, it takes a little bit longer, but it gives you a better knee. There's some cost to the hospital uh, because the hospital has to purchase more equipment to do the surgery. Um, so the hospitals make less money. So Lineker, I don't think Lineker make as much money uh, on my robotic knee as they would if I did an instrumented knee replacement. But they're prepared to, to do that because the results of the knee replacement are better. And they know that if I deliver better results, more patients will come to the hospital to have sure. the surgery. Over time, it pays off because the results are simply better. Well, that's it for the first part of episode 20, and hopefully it gives you an understanding into the surgical world of total knee replacements. In episode two, we will look at the operation itself. What happens during the operation? What happens immediately after the operation? What to expect with pain and swelling? And also the post-operative outcomes with respect to what are we expecting in terms of activities you can get back to? What sort of sport can you get back to? What causes total knee replacements to fail? And plenty more. So make sure you look out for episode 21, which is the second part of our conversation with orthopedic surgeon Chris Jones. <laughs>